Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. Tuesday, November 8th was election day. At the state level, all 120 seats of the North Carolina General Assembly, House of Representatives, and all 50 seats of the North Carolina Senate were on the ballot. Also on the ballot were two North Carolina Supreme Court seats and four North Carolina Court of Appeals seats. North Carolinians also voted for various local government representatives. At the national level, 35 of the 100 seats in the U.S. Senate were on the ballot, including one of North Carolina's two U.S. Senate seats, one of the country's most closely watched races. And all 435 U.S. House of Representatives seats were on the ballot. And North Carolina, which increased its number of districts, voted for 14 U.S. congressional representatives. There were several surprises. And again, the pollsters fell short of accurately predicting many of the outcomes. On this evening's show, we're going to talk about the results and implications of the North Carolina and national races and what we can expect as preparations begin for the 2024 election cycle. Joining us for this discussion is our colleague and fellow NCCU law professor, Don Corbett, who teaches, among other courses, constitutional law. Also joining us is Marcus Bass. He is the Executive Director of Advanced North Carolina and Deputy Director of the North Carolina Black Alliance. Thank you both again for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So before we get into some of the specific races, and there are several that we want to get your thoughts on, can both of you share just general impressions of the 2022 midterm elections? And uh, Don, let's start with you. Sure, and and thank you very much for for having me, and it's a pleasure to be here. If there's several things that I think uh, are in play in terms of your question, the one I will focus on is at least from my side of the fence, it was not as terrible as it could have been. Uh, <laughs> you know, we we at least statewide didn't get all the results necessarily that we wanted with regard to. Uh, the judicial positions that were available, but you know, nationally, the, it did not, as you referenced in your opening, it did not play out as pollsters uh, had predicted for the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I was also, it may sound a little bit Pollyannish, but it, it looked like people uh, turned out in pretty large numbers, which I was encouraged by because, as you know, uh, the airwaves and internet's been saturated with all the corruption allegedly that's tied to voting and all the fraud, but but it's it's and while it may be resonating with some people, it's clear that a lot of people still think it's important to vote. So even if they may not have voted the way that I would prefer that they vote, I think it's still good that people are engaged in the process, and 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 that's that that could be construed as a win for everybody. I think. 
All right, thank you. And Marcus, your thoughts. Absolutely. Um, April, I think that this year was interesting for North Carolina in a lot of different ways. It really spells out specifically how much of a battle this battleground state is still in. Um, one of the things that I think was unique in this election, um, Don already mentioned the judicial implications and what that what that could look like is I think, you know, could be scary for a lot of communities in North Carolina, but in particular rural North Carolina, rural voters voted in impressive numbers. We saw a turnout of young voters uh, that we did not anticipate. Even black men in particular voted in a midterm election in numbers that have not been seen before in a while. Uh, we're still waiting on the election day returns, but early vote was a strong indication of what could be uh, a very powerful force moving into the next two years. When you think about some of the issues that drove voters to the polls, it wasn't you know, inflation. It was the fact that this country is headed in a direction that a lot of voters just can't stomach. Uh, I'm surprised, uh, particularly by some of the races that were lost. I think in the Northeast, there was a contingent of Black elected officials that won't make it back to the General Assembly. But then there's some newcomers like Val Applewhite in Cumberland County in particular, that turned out. We held the line, I think Black voters rather, held the line around candidates that we needed, uh, that they felt needed to stay in office. I think about um, Garland Pierce in that Hope County part of the state. These are areas that were in fear. These are the same communities that saw a number of January 6th uh, individuals returning back to their counties. They saw a lot of voter intimidation. Uh, and then there were some very deep questions about where do we go from here? Think about Columbus County and the battle that they've had with the sheriff that made racist remarks, who then later resigned from office uh, to evade any type of uh, prosecution and now has won his election, is going to be back there in Columbus County. Uh, there are a lot of different um, fires still simmering from Tuesday. And I'm just excited to continue to look at the returns that are coming in from across the state. But by and large, I think the red wave that everyone predicted did not happen. And with the 7-7 split in Congress right now, I think there are indications around, you know, what this means even for the next, you know, seven to eight years as we look at what the maps and that process is going to um, spell out in 2030. So it's just my initial synopsis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, thank you both. There's a, there's so much for us to unpack. Let's start first with the one of the most um, heavily watched races, which was the North Carolina Senate seat, uh, which was open, and that was a seat that Sherry Beasley had been uh, campaigning for for a couple of years. Um, she ultimately was not successful, so she lost to Ted Budd. Um, there was a lot of hope that she would be able to pull it out. Um, it wasn't as close as, as I, I certainly had thought it would be. What are your thoughts, Marcus, we'll start with you, with the results of that particular speech? I think now that we're on the other side of it, there were some indicators uh, prior to the start of the election that let us know how difficult that Senate race would be. Uh, I think by a large account, uh, we still have evaded seeing a statewide candidate, Black candidate, run and win since Ralph Campbell. Uh, and I think there is a huge showing of individuals that believed in the power of uh, Sherry Beasley in 2020 that went to the polls in 2022, but it wasn't quite the bump that was needed. Looking at the numbers, um, Sherry Beasley received 50% of the vote share, a little less than that in 2020. This year, carried 47%. Uh, the indicators say that while that is very impressive, it still wasn't enough 
to beat this wave. Ted Budd did some things, I think, in this election cycle, both candidates did, uh, that was very unique and, and made them kind of unicorn candidates in their own parties. You didn't see uh, Trump campaigning for Bud in the same fashion that you saw him campaigning for other candidates. And that seemed to win the day. For Sherry Beasley, you didn't see the influence of uh, President Biden, President Obama coming in in the fourth quarter. And for the candidates that won on a federal level across the country, that surrogacy in the last minute helped pull them over uh, the hurdle. When you look at the spread uh, this year, the hundreds of thousands of votes that was the difference maker, that's a lot different than the 401 votes that saw the demise of uh, Chief Justice Beasley in the 2020 election. But I think 2022 spelled out a more uh, direct repeal of uh, this notion of, you know, is the Black candidate the best choice and is North Carolina ready to see uh, a Black woman senator in office? And I think that question uh, is a lingering question. But in reality, we knew that this was an uphill race, a very difficult race from the beginning. It's just my two cents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that kind of leads into, Don, I want to get your reactions uh, to Sherry Beasley, but I think that like nicely kind of dovetails into what happened with the courts because we saw a Republican sweep for all of those seats and the same, same thing at play. I mean, these were statewide uh, positions and we kind of see the same thing in terms of the Republicans coming out and you know being able to carry the day. Do you have any uh, anything you want to add with respect to the U.S. Senate seat? And could you share your thoughts on where we stand with the North Carolina courts, the Supreme Court, and the Court of Appeals? Yeah, of all the results for me, that was among the most disappointing. But but then, as Marcus just stated, you could see some writing on the wall. Uh, and and I think, you know, with regard to Justice Beasley, I, I thought she ran pretty well on the whole. I thought she had excellent endorsements. I thought her media was pretty well done. And, and I think the problem, to the degree that you can even attribute it to her, because it's really not her, was just they were just crushing her with advertisements on crime near the end. And that mirrored, I think, the Republican strategy nationwide of keeping people mad and keeping them scared. And, and I think not only was that probably impactful here and may have affected her ability to win uh, beyond the reasons that Marcus just talked about, but also I think it probably impacted the judicial races as well uh, in the sense that, you know, many of the ads with regard to Justice Beasley had much to do with the people that she had, quote unquote, let out of jail. You know, never mind that these were they're, they're out on constitutional provisions or out because there was attorney misconduct. Well, she just let them out of jail. And I think that may have uh, triggered in, trickled into people's thinking about, well, who's less likely to let people out of jail because I'm scared of criminals and, with, and more specifically black criminals. Uh, I think that's going to be this particular judge over here. And, and for me, you know, in, in what looked to me to be very, very close races, otherwise like all of them, maybe about 150, 200,000 votes between them, it made enough difference to, to put some of those people over the top. So uh, incredibly disappointing, especially when you think about the important issues within the state that are going to be getting to the North Carolina Supreme Court over time. Well, you know, with, 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 with in response to that, uh, I was kind of disappointed with the uh, with the fight back uh, that uh, was uh, present in the media to the uh, attacks against uh, uh, Sherry Beasley. Uh, the uh, challenge to what uh, the results of her judicial rulings were never came. Uh, there, were, there were no responses at all 
to it and it was left out there as if it was true. Uh, and, and the irony of, of that is that when you look at some of the uh, attacks on the, uh, uh, the Republican candidates for the uh, Supreme Court, uh, they raised the same issue against them that were raised against Sherry uh, Beasley, but it didn't have the same traction. Uh, with respect to uh, the uh, Republican candidates for the uh, the North Carolina Supreme Court, but I was really disappointed that there were no uh, re responses from anyone uh, as to the uh, tax uh, against uh, Sherry uh, Beasley. Uh, the other issue, though, as it goes, as we look at the the Court of Appeals, because uh, you talked about the clean sweep, is that. Uh, there wasn't even an offense created uh, for the uh, uh, judges, the Democratic judges, for the uh, Court of Appeals. It was as if uh, all they had going for them was, was their name and their uh, party affiliation, and that they had nothing to present uh, to the uh, uh, to the electorate uh, to uh, in entice them to vote. Uh, for them, so you know, how, how do you, you know, what's, how do you respond uh, to those observations? Uh, and this is just for me sitting on the sideline uh, watching it because uh, I wasn't paying for any ads. Well, you know, Doctor J sitting on the sideline is better than uh, anybody sitting on the sideline, Earth. So I think your analysis is spot on. Um, our community the larger black community. Um, you could even argue the larger progressive community, Democrats in general, um, however you fall in that spectrum of the four options. We have not focused on the judiciary for over 20 years. As a matter of fact, to bring it home, we have lost sight on the judiciary since we lost Chief Justice Henry Fry, uh, attorney joiner. When we think about the intentionality and this um, spread offense that has happened, the judiciary has been in the uh, crosshairs of the GOP for the past 15 years. At one point in time, the judiciary was an independent uh, campaign. You couldn't run on a political party. That was strike one. Uh, and then when we look at uh, some of the district courts, that uh, gerrymandering that you mentioned earlier, that has happened already on a district court level. Uh, when we get to the appellate courts and the Supreme Court, there is not a bench that we can speak of uh, that is prepared in the same um, uh, same dynamic that we saw on the GOP end. Right now, there are just two Democratic Supreme Court justices left. One of those is an African-American male. I think when you look at the number of attorneys that have ran for other races across the state of North Carolina, there seems to be a, a lack of understanding of how important and intentional it is to have attorneys in political office. Um, I want to take a minute and, and really just kind of get our attorneys in order, because for a long time, attorneys have failed to look at the political implications of your service. And I think right now we have to understand and be honest about the fact that judges are political in nature and they're taking their politics uh, all the way up to the bench and not just to the bench on a district level, but to the bench on an appellate level and the bench on a state Supreme Court level. So I really think um, we really need to stop depending on others to tell us what our priorities are because we don't focus until it's too late on what matters first. We have been screaming justice on the ballot since the murder of George Floyd. And then somewhere along the line in the past six to eight months, 
because of polls, uh, because of pressure, because of maybe funding, uh, we lost sight on what's important. Uh, and I think, Professor Dawson, you know, you, you already know the intentionality of having this preparation of attorneys and this pipeline of attorneys. We seem to have gotten uh, the, there's a kink in the hose when it comes down to relating those issues to the general public and then preparing a deep bench of individuals to seek those offices. That is an excellent point, which we will be able to flesh out. Um, we're gonna take a quick break. You are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here in WNCU 90.7 FM. And this hour, we have been talking about the 2022 midterm election. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, NCCU constitutional law professor, Don Corbett and the Executive Director of Advanced North Carolina, Marcus Bass. We're gonna take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. We're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with two very astute individuals about the 2022 midterm election results we have with us here in our Zoom studio. Marcus Bass, he is the Executive Director of Advanced North Carolina and the Deputy Director of the North Carolina Black Alliance. We also have with us our colleague and frequent guest, Professor Don Corbett. He teaches, among other courses, constitutional law here at NCCU School of Law. So Marcus, right before the break, you were making the point that um, we need to make sure we have a good pipeline of progressive individuals who are ready to run for these offices and that we at the you know, law school, um, we can certainly do more to help prepare the students. One, let them know that these opportunities exist and, and the calling is, is coming. One of the things that I, I do want to just kind of touch on before we move on to some of the other races is um, 
the the role that money plays and so especially when it comes to the judicial races but certainly not exclusively the, the judicial races so you know these positions are positions of you know public service and and they don't pay particularly well and when we think about and this is actually true for all of these you know positions and when we think about those who are in a position to be able to run for office there is a requirement almost that there be a certain level of wealth um, and the ability to you know, raise money. And that's not something that we typically see within our community. Can both of you kind of talk about the role that money plays in making sure that the pipeline is, is fully, you know, kind of filled out? Like, you know, you may have those that desire, but from an economic standpoint, really may not be able to run for public office. Don, let's sure. start with you. Sure, sure. So, so for folk who may be unfamiliar, and I think it was 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court in a case called Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, uh, essentially said that corporations have the same right to free speech as individuals do. And what this means in a political context is that uh, sometimes you'll hear the phrase money is speech, and, and that's not 100% true. But what the court said in that case is people ought to be able to, that money enables speech. So you ought to be able to spend as much as you want without restriction, uh, because restricting it in some way, shape or form would be restricting your right to free speech. And if corporations have the same right as individuals, what it's done is it's really, really tilted the, uh, the political landscape considerably toward both wealthy individuals and corporations because it's not just about whether the individual person uh, who's running for office has, has money, it's whether they have access to the people in the corporations that do have the money, uh, because you just are gonna have a really difficult time getting your message out, getting your profile out, getting your agenda out, to the extent you have one in some cases, but, but getting those things out to the public without money. I just read this morning that the cost of this 2022 election is gonna be like almost $17 billion, uh, the presidential election of 2020 uh, was $14.4 billion, and that had broken the record that Trump and Clinton set in 2016, which was $7.7 billion. So it's not getting less expensive, it's getting more expensive. And, and sadly, what I think that's doing is it's keeping people who may have really unique ideas and are really smart individuals, but don't have the access to either the income or the entities with the income to be able to run for office. And, and it's why it seems like to me, oftentimes we get so many candidates that look very similar in profile agenda and thought process. Thank you for that. Uh, Marquez, what are your thoughts? Yeah, just to add to those numbers that Don shared, um, PACs contributed $15 million just in the Supreme Court race alone, um, just in the Supreme Court race alone to put the 17, billion dollars in perspective the state budget of north carolina is 24 billion dollars so relatively um enough this race could have funded a very small state in north carolina or a very medium-sized state depending on how you look at it north carolina is the 10th largest in regards to population but i think this money and politics situation mm -hmm. has really gotten out of hand and i think it's interesting too because corporations have always fueled 
this system in America. When we look at um, the first delineation of charters that were given um, by the queen to come over, those were corporations that were investing in America. When we look at the individual corporations that were investing in the slave ships that went over to Africa to take free labor chattel slaves, uh, take individuals from Africa and bring them back here as chattel slaves, that was a corporate move. And that was a political move as well. And so I think corporations have a long history in America of hiding behind politics. And I think in this case, it's becoming more and more obvious with these large ticket items. Number one, uh, how um, much influence corporations now have on politics and how much money is on politics in the back end. When you look at North Carolina being a good road state, when you look at the number of hospitals, the number of institutions, public institutions, those are big contracts. You know, I, I would, if I had the opportunity, you know, take Irv and Don and Alan, maybe we could get a grass company together and make more money than I think some of these uh, individuals really realize when it comes down to these contracts, those are big dollars. When it comes down to pharmaceuticals, that's big dollars. And so the vested interest that we're seeing uh, of corporate interest playing in this political field has to change. There's no way that individuals that are really everyday citizens have the opportunity to raise that much money and get that much attention. Let's just think about the North Carolina governor race next year and how much money is going to be at play in that race alone. It's impossible for someone, uh, even with the best credentials, the best experience, without uh, $10 million on January 1, there's no point in even stepping up to the table. So we have eliminated millions of people that could be the best qualified individuals for these races just by stacking the deck um, based on a Supreme Court ruling, Citizens United. I'm glad, Don, you mentioned that because that was the precursor that made legal this notion that not only are corporations considered people in the eyes of the government, but they have more rights. They can contribute more dollars directly. And those funds don't have to be tracked. Now, Advanced Carolina is a C4. I think I should say that and be very transparent. But I think we should not be um, blind at all to the fact that this C4 that's based in North Carolina that is led by black individuals is going to have the same impact as a super PAC that is funded by the Koch brothers or that is funded by a large corporation. You know, we would like to think of ourselves as that grandiose, but at the end of the day, these movement bases are apples and oranges when it comes down to funding. And even, um, you know, by community, as these local PACs continue to grow, we have some organizations that have been around in community for over 80 years, the Durham Committee, um, the Raleigh Wake Citizen Association, the Simpkins Pack in Greensboro. These are not the type of institutions that we're talking about when we talk about dark money, but it, are, it is these large corporations and these larger organizations that uh, spin off these super PACs and these large C4s that are able to at will influence an election. And even if a candidate doesn't have money, if they pick you, you know, you have the opportunity to be catapulted. Nine times out of 10, those folks don't look like our listeners, nor does it look like um, our, our wonderful host of this wonderful show. Well, you know, going, going a little further now, down the ballot, we uh, April mentioned 14 uh, congressional uh, seats uh, on the uh, ballot uh, this uh, year. And uh, out of that uh, collection of uh, races, there were three African-Americans uh, who came out uh, ahead, which is uh, an improvement uh, in the uh, composition of the uh, North Carolina delegation. And, uh, and I believe there were, in addition to that, two, three other Democrats uh, who uh, were victors in, uh, in that race. So can, 
Can you speak to uh, the effectiveness uh, at that level and what is its meaning uh, going forward? Uh, so uh, why don't we just start with uh, Don on, on that? It's very encouraging. And to the extent that there was a sliver of hope out there in, in the scope of the, in part of the national landscape, but it, it was, it's, it, 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 like I said, provides you with some belief that, that there is a way for people that you think are most invested in you uh, to be able to continue to work on your behalf. But the question is obviously, Professor Joyner, you know, how long is that going to persist, <laughs> right? Because, you know, depending on who's in the legislature, you know, I, I can bet, I'm, I'm almost willing to bet right now there are people thinking about, well, how did this even happen? How did we get to the point where that many Democrats are going to be able to go from North Carolina? And that's where your gerrymandering stuff that Marcus referenced a little bit earlier comes into play. So at least for now, you know, we will revel in the, uh, Good fortune of those individuals who won the Don Davises of the world, the Alma Adamses, et cetera, all those are important. Uh, but we have to, again, as Marcus referenced earlier, stay diligent because uh, the landscape can change overnight based on who is, uh, who's creating some of the rules. Marcus? Only, only thing I would add to Professor Corbett's remarks uh, is the fact that these uh, wins, this really um, even split 7-7 in Congress is a direct uh, representation of a Supreme Court remedy uh, that came in play where a special master drew these congressional maps um, based on not partisanship, but based on, um, you know, the real tenets of redistricting that should be played out. Uh, now, this remedy is only a one-time solution. Those maps are going to be redrawn by a General Assembly that even though the governor still has the power of the veto by one member of the House, uh, there's still a large chance that the maps could be redrawn to favor Republicans as they have historically. But I do think this window of opportunity that Don is mentioning is historic. The fact that in these districts, uh, typically that would have swung Republican, now we have Black women uh, leading the day and a number of Democratic candidates. I think for a lot of folks that really don't understand nonpartisan politics or the opportunity that a even split in a democracy means it's not always chaos. Sometimes you get some real legislation done when folks have to compromise amongst themselves, as long as they don't compromise on the people's issues. But I do ultimately think that this is a short-term um, fix for what is going to be a long-term problem that we're going to have until 2030. The individuals that are in power in the General Assembly are going to have the ability to redraw maps, and we won't have the luxury of having the balance of power with the Supreme Court now that is 5-2 Republican controlled, uh, it could spell disaster for some of these districts. However, there is hope when we look at some of these local elections, in particular in some of our large minority cities, there are individuals that are not having to raise millions of dollars to win. I think about the sheriff race in Wake County where really Roe defeated a the former sheriff, Donnie Harrison, who was a Republican, uh, he was outspent, you know, completely outnumbered uh, in regards to what really Roe could pull together. But the relationships that were built and the fact that on a local level, elections are determined by less than two or three voters for a precinct. There's a model here, even looking at Georgia in 2020, what's happened in North Carolina in 2018. There's some symbology of being able to beat back gerrymandering but it is a uh, all in all uh, a hard uphill battle to climb to beat how they have rigged the system. And I don't think we should underlook that, especially when we are uh, doing a postmortem on the elections. And, and, and Professor Joyner, if you don't mind, 
President, yeah. I'm sorry. Can I can I have one more thing to what Marcus just said? Yes. To, to, to Marcus's point, there's a very, very important case that's going up before the Supreme Court next month yeah. that involves this very subject we're talking about, which is the how the maps are drawn by the state legislature. And the North Carolina, uh, the, uh, the attorneys representing the North Carolina General Assembly, again, which is at this point uh, majority population by Republicans is, is making a very novel legal argument that five to seven years ago would have been laughed out of court, but now is a viable position that the court appears to be interested in. And it's called the independent state legislature theory. And the idea is that, that the constitution should be interpreted in such a way that the uh, state legislatures have the exclusive power uh, that cannot be reviewable by state courts when it comes to uh, making selections with regard and with regard to how elections run uh, and the framework that, that they use to uh, create them, all kinds of chaos could uh, could come from that if the Supreme Court decides that this independent state legislature theory is viable. And it would start absolutely with uh, with the removal of oversight from the uh, from the legislature, and that could be dangerous for about 37 different reasons. Well, speaking of the legislature, uh, the North Carolina legislature, which is uh, re-elected every two years, uh, just like the uh, congressional representatives, uh, we are uh, at a position now where there is a supermajority at the uh, Senate level and uh, just short of a supermajority at the uh, uh, representative uh, level. What uh, impact is that going to have on us moving forward since we lost uh, African-American uh, representation at both the Senate and the House level uh, here in the, uh, in, in, in the state. And that's gonna be uh, important as Marcus, as you mentioned, uh, with respect to redistricting uh, in the uh, upcoming uh, cycle. So what do you see there? And, uh, you wanna start uh, with Marcus this time on that? I think this is the, the very interesting part of politics where even though Democrats have historically since before, uh, well, not since before, not since before they were the original party of uh, slavery, have had the luxury since um, the 60s, since right after the civil rights movement of being able to have a large uh, margin share of black voters. This is where this does not benefit black the black community by and large. I can recall in uh, 2021 and in 2020, I can say this you know publicly now, where black politicians had to uh, beg, borrow, and deal just to get on the redistricting committee, um, where the Democratic Party overlooked uh, a lot of these individuals that needed to be on in that process. Uh, they had no black women originally on the Senate redistricting committee until there was a push um, for inclusion. And when we think about now, the fact that there are that many less or that many that much fewer black representatives in the General Assembly, the party in control is not looking to have that diversity in space. Uh, we're gonna have to make sure that we are watching this process very carefully and nobody can get sick, Attorney Joyner. We have to make sure that we send um, you know, whatever we need to send in January and February now. And they're going to start very early on this redistricting process. They were supposed to go into a redistricting session, if you recall, uh, immediately after the end of this session. But I think they wanted to wait and see what the crystal ball is read. And I think uniquely, whereas the nation is kind of uh, reveling at the fact that they did not, um, the blue wave did not happen completely, 
we still had a breach and we're under hurricane watch here in North Carolina. So we have to make sure uh, that we stay vigilant. Uh, those of us that believe in an open government that is devoid of some of the partisan politics have to make sure that we are holding the Republicans accountable and also holding the Democrats accountable to make sure that even though we have less representation now in the General Assembly than we did before Tuesday, that still doesn't mean that we should not have a seat at the table when it comes down to what uh, choices, challenges, and compromises are being made in this upcoming redistricting process. Okay, Professor Corbin. I can't say it any better than that. I'll add uh, one thing, uh, and this is it's almost a side issue based on relative to what we're talking about. But even though you had some movement, one of the things that did not happen was the supermajority in both houses, which would have given Republicans a veto, a veto proof uh, vote when it comes to the issue of abortion. Right now, North Carolina is almost like a destination state for women in the Southeast because our uh, abortion laws are so much more, I wouldn't call them lenient, but they're certainly much more lenient than they are in other parts of the South. And uh, had they gained that supermajority uh, through this past election, then they could have overridden any veto of any new abortion regulation that, Coop, that, uh, that would have been able to override any veto from Governor Cooper. So again, at least for the next two years, uh, we have a little bit of respite from that, which is um, important for uh, women all over the state and unfortunately all over the region, uh, given where our current status is as a country. Okay, trouble in the lane. We're talking with uh, Professor uh, Don Corbett, who teaches uh, constitutional law at uh, North Carolina Central University School of Law, and uh, Marcus Bass, who is the Executive Director of Advanced North Carolina and is the de Deputy Director of the North Carolina Black uh, Alliance. And we're talking about the uh, 2022 midterm election uh, results. Uh, we're going to continue that uh, discussion after we take our break. We want you to uh, stay with us and we will be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review where we are continuing our conversations about the uh, 2022 midterm election uh, results. And we have with us uh, Marcus Bass, who is the Executive Director of Advanced North Carolina. 
and is also the deputy director of the North Carolina Black uh, Alliance, and our colleague, uh, fellow NCCU law professor, uh, Don Corbett, uh, who is a uh, constitutional law uh, expert and uh, one who has uh, been on this uh, uh, in these discussions several times uh, before. Uh, Looking at the, uh, and, and, and this is a, a kind of around the country, uh, as we look for a resolution of the uh, majority uh, position in the uh, North, uh, U.S. Senate and uh, to see what is happening with the majority uh, status in the uh, House of Representatives. Uh, we have uh, in uh, Georgia a runoff that is now between uh, Herschel Walker and uh, uh, Congressman uh, Warnock. Uh, how, how do you see uh, that race as you compare it with Stacey Abrams and her race uh, in Georgia where she fell short uh, to uh, gain the uh, governorship of, uh, of, that, uh, of, of that state? Uh, looking at the same voters, uh, what 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 does that mean going forward uh, for the uh, e uh, electoral uh, politics in that state and I ideally, I guess, in the country? Uh, so, Don, you want to start us off with that? I'll give it a shot. I don't know that I could make it make sense in any world that Stacey Abrams would be defeated in the same state where Herschel Walker forces a runoff. It's, it's just everything seems to be like up is down nowadays. I, I, I feel like on a lot of levels, it's what, you know, ideally, I think what you want from, from a political system is a place to kind of mediate ideas, right? And, and maybe you meet in the middle. I don't win all the time. You don't win all the time. But but we're able to function in such a way as where we can keep things going. And what I think we're seeing increasingly now across the country is it really just about what color jersey you got on. And if your team, if you're wearing the jersey of my team, then I'm gonna vote for you. And I don't care necessarily about how many kids you've had or how much experience you have or, or anything about your moral fiber. I'm gonna roll with you because this is the way I think that the country ought to be rolling. And I think when, when Herschel got the endorsement of Trump. And we also can't underplay that he is a football hero in that state. I mean, he really is. And people will probably never forget his time as a running back in Georgia. Whether that qualifies him to be in the state as a U.S. senator, I'm not really sure. But I do know that uh, for a lot of people, he's got on the right color jersey. And uh, that's who they want to see in the office. And, and it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. But, you know, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have mm -hmm. to. So, uh, well, we'll see how it plays out. A running back who needs to be running back. Uh, Marcus, uh, <laughs> how do you can just how do you see this? No, no, uh, no better way to end that than a double on time because he he definitely needs to be a running back, stay in football, and not worry about president as as Obama worry about Congress as Obama mentioned the Senate rather. I think um, the midterm turnout is always going to be lower than presidential turnout. That's just a fact. And I don't think that um, that accounts for all of what happened in the demise of Stacey Abrams. But when we look at Val Demings, Stacey Abrams, Sherry Beasley, uh, there is a slow Southern politic uh, that is stubborn. And our electorate 
has got to engage, not just black women. We can't just put it all on black women uh, or on black men or on black youth. But we have to look at the hardcore numbers. Uh, it wasn't too long ago when in North Carolina we saw uh, Governor Cooper easily make it in the office. Josh Stein right behind him at the expense of four black statewide candidates that did not get elected. And that was in a presidential election. Um, our numbers are going to always be around 47 to 46 percent. You can bank on that. But I think there is a level of swing with this growing rise of independent voters that we have to figure out how to message to without interrupting our base. But I think specifically um, with this kind of Southern strategy and how it plays out with our women of color, I think it is uh, very unique to um, politics, how difficult it is for black women to break this glass ceiling. I think we're, we're gonna see how this Georgia football uh, kind of mystique plays out in this runoff I don't know, all eyes are going to be on Georgia. But one of the things that I'm uh, very uniquely aware of is that, you know, for a lot of individuals in this election cycle, white men turned out in larger percentages across the state, across the country than black women. I think uh, that match with the lower turnout across um, the board makes me wonder if we really messaged to black women the way we should have. I think it is lazy logic to only land on the abortion question as a way to message to a group of voters, many of which who are over the age of childbearing. I think we need to be talking to the substantive issues around violence in the workplace, the pay average for women. Uh, I think if we really cared about the base of voters that we needed to turn out in these communities, it wouldn't just be the candidates that are speaking to them, it would be the party shift in messaging. But for some reason, um, we still uh, kind of like to pick from the discount rack when it comes down to what uh, is going to turn out black voters. And I think in this midterm election, uh, we got what we paid for. When we see an enthusiastic base of white men who are still incensed around January 6th, using that as a rallying cry. And on the other end, all we have is the surrogacy or the celebrity of a person going to office, even though they're not necessarily uh, against some of the things that their base needs. They're not speaking directly to those issues. And they're still trying to get uh, compromise between this swing base of voters that they have to turn out and really just hardcore sticking to their, to their guns or to their community, rather. I shouldn't say guns. <laughs> and, you know, when we talk about, you know, what happened with Stacey Abrams and, you know, and you look at um, the difference between the number of votes that she got and the number of votes that Warnock got, um, white women play a role in that as well. And so, you know, one would think that there would be support of her. And this kind of just goes back to, you know, the type of support or lack of support that uh, Black women receive or, you know, the, the additional challenges that we have to get to positions of, of um, power. Um, so we know that this runoff election, which is going to take place at some point in early December, is going to probably be pretty consequential um, in deciding who controls the Senate. Um, so what are your thoughts about where we are with the House of Representatives, right? So um, I believe the Republicans have control of the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, it may come down to Georgia as far as who has control of the Senate. Can you talk about how all eyes again will be on Georgia and what we might be able to expect in terms of the strategy and 
from both sides in trying to galvanize, you know, their um, uh, their voters. Sure, sure. Uh, I'll take a crack at it. I, for people who don't know, uh, by the time this Georgia recount happens, if everything holds true, the Republicans will have a 50 to 49 advantage in the Senate. Uh, if Warnock wins, then it becomes a 50-50 split in the Senate between Democrats and Republicans. But if there is a 50-50 tie, then Vice President Harris gets to break the tie. So uh, if, for whatever reason, Walker is able to prevail, then that would give Republicans control of both the House and the Senate. Uh, and and the Vice President Harris would not have a role in regard to crafting legislation in the same way that she might in this other context. And 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 Marcus mentioned about 20 minutes ago about the importance of the judiciary and how uh, there needs to be more focus from Democrats about that and progressives about that. Well, having a 50-50 split, but having uh, Vice President Harris be the deciding vote means that you now have a couple more years to put more like-minded judges on the bench because all of them have to go through uh, the Senate confirmation process. So it's it's very critical. I think, again, as Marcus mentioned a bit ago, it's going to be about turnout and who can uh, create more enthusiasm among their base uh, about getting out to vote in Georgia because, as you mentioned, Professor Dawson, Georgia, again, becomes the center of the universe politically for the next four or five weeks or so. Mention what we should send to Biden. I'm not going to mention on the air what we should send to Clarence Thomas. I'll save that for uh, another commentary. Maybe you have to follow me on social media for that. But I, I, I do think that Professor Corbett is absolutely right. This um, we're going to see more of uh, the same good policies that we saw come in the latter half of the first part of uh, this Biden administration because of um, what we have right now in. Um, in Congress. And then I think in the, as for the Senate, I think it is going to be a, a tooth and nail um, kind of situation where we have the power, we have to make sure that we do exactly what we as in, you know, the, the um, Democrats, not necessarily we as in myself in particular, but the Democrats have the power, the Republicans uh, will have some leverage and advantage. And I think it's going to be very incumbent among those in power, the Democrats in particular, to stay very close to their base. We need to see through um, this college debt piece and making sure that we get water in the communities that don't have infrastructure. We need to make sure internet expansion happens. And I think we need to be very vigilant of um, what role that the courts can and will play. Because I think at every turn, um, the GOP is going to try to use their control in uh, the Supreme Court to make sure that they can block at every turn any piece of legislation uh, that they find questionable. But I don't think that should stop or deter the party um, in power in um, in DC from making sure they do the right thing and continue to lead on doing people-centered policy, regardless of um, any type of prospect of um, you know litigation from um, the GOP. Just my immediate thought. I think that we are in better a better situation nationally than we are statewide. Uh, I think also too the what we saw in the Supreme Court in 2020 has mirrored what we saw in North Carolina. So I think it spells out not just for North Carolina, a lack of attention on the judiciary, but across the board, just you know, top to bottom, we have to relook it and rethink this um, balance of power and how it plays for and against the party in power. We need to start thinking about that now and putting that in place now too. 
you know, well, what are we going to do about turnout? You mentioned uh, the uh, student loan uh, forgiveness uh, proposed by uh, President Biden and, and uh, certainly supported by a lot of people. Uh, that is something that is uh, on the line right now. And uh, I was quite frankly distressed uh, that, uh, that the student turnout uh, at the uh, college level was uh, very small, uh, as if it was not something that uh, impacted them or those recent graduates who have uh, these uh, student loans. Uh, it, 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 it didn't seem to register uh, with them that that is something that is important uh, going forward, whether it's a reduction of $10,000 or a reduction of uh, $20,000, which is more than uh, some of them are making. Uh, so how do we uh, how do we focus in on the the, the turnout issue among uh, among our people, particularly uh, young people, or maybe I should say younger people? So so actually, this year it it did trend a little bit uh, higher than the stereotype, right? I think on um, Tufts just put out uh, some data that said that youth turnout was the second highest this year than it has been in the last three decades. Um, it was estimated that 27% of young people between the ages of 18 and 29 actually cast a ballot in 2022. And I, I know for a fact that North Carolina Central University, even though the entire weight of the registered campus population didn't turn out, the fact of the matter is North Carolina Central is one of only two campuses that still had a polling location on campus. And so there was a massive effort in the midst of homecoming uh, to make sure the students turned out to vote. I can uh, recall seeing um, the Black Voters Matter bus uh, coming down uh, the street as uh, Central went to the polls early the week before. They did a vote coming um, tour on their campus. We even spent a large uh, number of days and weeks on the yard, knocking the doors, talking to students in the dorms and taking them to the polls. So I think the turnout uh, kind of dismay around midterm is equated possibly also to the youth turnout, but I think we're seeing a higher trend in youth voter turnout. I think young voters are understanding the implications of this gun violence. Um, there was a recent death of a very well-known rapper that happened right before the midterms and that really brought gun violence very present uh, to the minds of a lot of young people and young college students. And I think one area that we have to make sure we are turning out around is not just our college students, but our young voters, 18 to 29 in general, our community college students, our individuals that are still looking for work or in the workforce, I think that may be a larger uh, resounding response in voter turnout uh, than just the individual students on the college campuses alone. And also our PWI campuses. You can uh, combine the black college students at three of our largest PWIs and it pales, um, you know, it, it doubles or triples compared to our HBCUs combined, our black student totals of HBCUs. So I think there was a lot of um, attention and intensity around turning out the vote at HBCU campuses. I think overall voter turnout is trending upward in regards to 18 to 29 year olds, but I think we have to get deeper in community and more expansive when more students don't have college debt than do have college debt. You know, what other things can we be talking about in the next two years to turn out a larger swath of those voters? Don? Yeah, I, 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 the only thing I can think of to, to maybe even add, and I'll say add with a lowercase a, is I think you, you got to go where they are and make the make the, a lot of the marketing intentional toward them. 
one of the problems with having, you know, corporations, and this is on both sides of the fence now, Democrats and Republicans, when you have, you tend to see the same kind of ad over and over and over and over and over again. And if you want folk to turn out, then you got to make it germane to them in terms of why they're turning out and why they're voting. And, and I think there needs to be more of those kind of efforts targeted, and not just the college students, like Marcus said, but what about the, the students that are at community college, the students that may not be in college, but may be working uh, in that 18 to 25 inch yard or age space. So I think that's an area, especially with the elections turning and hinging more and more on turnout as opposed to maybe ideas that you, you just have to be, I think, more creative about making sure you get the people to the polls that you want. Yeah, and that raises the question that I know we're not gonna be able to fully explore because we're almost out of time, but what strategies are being employed now um, for 2024? Because of course, you know, Republicans have been very good about, you know, not celebrating the wins, whatever they are, and get to planning for the next election cycle. And I think Democrats need to be more intentional about that. And I think, I think they are. Um, but this youth vote, right, we, we know that that number, that demographic is increasing. We know that when they are engaged, they actually do come out. And we also know that Republicans employ voter suppression tactics to try and keep those demographics that might vote Democrat down. So what should we be thinking about now? What are the strategies are, that are going to be employed? Um, and unfortunately, we, we're out of time, but we're going to invite the two of you back because we can't wait until next year. We certainly can't wait until, you know, 2020, um, 20, early 2024. I mean, you know, figuring out what the strategy is going to be should have, you know, for 2024 should have started yesterday. And now we've got to really start thinking hard about how you get folks engaged, because when we talk about saving democracy, we're not talking about suppressing the vote. We're talking about allowing everyone to vote, encouraging everyone to vote, and then let the chips fall where they may. But what you can't do is to try to retain power by preventing people from exercising their constitutional right. So, we're going to have to end it there. I'm sorry, I'm having the last word, um, but we are out of time. We'd like to thank our guests, the very learned NCCU law constitutional professor, Don Corbett, the very astute Marcus Bass, who is the executive director of Advanced North Carolina and the deputy director of the North Carolina Black Alliance. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. And we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagorevue at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy and safe.